Chapter Twelve of the Sheridan Road Mystery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sheridan Road Mystery by Paul and Mabel Thorne. Chapter Twelve. Missing. Two days had passed without any word from Morgan, and Marsh himself had made little progress on the case. For a large part of those two days had been taken up in assisting Jane Atwood to pack her personal things and remove them to her new home in the hotel. They had been pleasant days for Marsh because he had derived considerable happiness from the little services he had been able to render the girl, and also because it was the first time in all the months he had been watching over her that he was actually in her company. During this time Marsh had made one discovery of a peculiar nature, but its working out appeared to have no particular effect on the developments of the case. The morning after he escorted Jane Atwood to the hotel, she had returned to the apartment to begin her packing. While assisting in this, Marsh had suggested that she notify the man from whom her father had rented the apartment, so that he could take steps to secure another tenant. He was amazed to learn that she knew nothing whatever about the matter, not even the name of the man from whom they rented. So, during the morning, Marsh called at the office of the agent of the building and explained the situation. The agent was surprised, saying that he had always supposed a Mr. Crocker, whose name appeared on the lease, occupied the apartment himself. The man's name not appearing in the telephone directory, the agent had suggested that he would write to the man's former St. Louis address. Marsh thought this a good idea, and owing to the odd situation which had developed, left his telephone number, suggesting that the agent let him know what he heard in the matter. The next afternoon the real estate agent telephoned him that a telegram had just arrived from the man in St. Louis, stating that he had never rented any such apartment in Chicago, had never signed any lease, and did not know anything about the matter. To Marsh, the situation was obvious. In renting the apartment, Atwood had used the name of a well-known St. Louis man so as to have good references and close the deal quietly without in any way bringing his own name and personality into the matter. There was nothing in this information to help the case in any way, yet it created a strange situation. Here was an apartment full of furniture that rightfully belonged to the girl, and yet he could in no way convince her of that fact without also disclosing the other circumstances connected with the case. All that they could do was to walk out and close the door behind them, leaving the problem to the real estate agent to solve. This they did on Friday afternoon, and so far as Marsh was concerned, the Atwood apartment was of no further interest, for it was obvious, now that Atwood was supposed to be dead, no one connected with him would be likely to ever again visit the apartment. He decided, however, to remain in his own apartment for the present. The lease he had signed had still nearly a year to run. He was comfortable, and free to come and go as he pleased, without anyone noticing his movements. Then there was no telling how long he would have to remain in Chicago, for he felt that the solution of this case still rested somewhere within the city limits. At the present moment he was facing a blank wall, but any day or hour might furnish a new clue that would set things moving again. In fact, he was inclined to feel that when he again heard from Morgan, the detective would probably have valuable information for him. It was Saturday morning, and Marsh, on his way back from breakfast at the little waffle shop, purchased a copy of the Tribune, and went back to his apartment to look over the day's news. No sooner had he opened the paper than this headline met his eyes. Prominent Broker Missing. Marsh dropped the paper on his knees and thought for a moment. Ever since Tuesday morning, when the trouble had occurred, he had carefully scanned the papers for reports of any missing people who might in any way be connected with this occurrence. Here at last was an announcement that looked promising. He began to read the article. 
Richard Townsend Merton, the well-known LaSalle Street broker, has been missing for ten days, it was learned yesterday. Gilbert Hunt, the general manager of the Merton business, notified the police that Mr. Merton had not appeared at his office, his clubs, or his hotel for some days. A telegraphed inquiry to his wife, who resides with an invalid son in Arizona, brought the reply that Mr. Merton had not been there. The manager is inclined to believe that Mr. Merton has either wandered away during a lapse of memory, or may have met with an accident. The article then continued with the usual outline of what the police were doing, and a description of the broker's life and habits. Marsh learned from this that Merton had closed his country home in Hubbard Woods when his wife moved to Arizona with their son. He had lived for the past two years at a downtown hotel, and spent most of his evenings at his clubs. After reading the entire article carefully, Marsh cut out the accompanying photographs of Merton and the absent wife and son. Here was something worth investigating, he thought, for he remembered the cuff button with the initial M, which Morgan had discovered. For upwards of an hour Marsh sat in deep deliberation, figuring how he could get in close touch with the situation, without in any way disclosing his official connection or real interest in the matter. At last he decided to follow a plan which he had used successfully in connection with two previous cases. He looked up the address of the Merton offices, and putting on his coat and hat, took the Sheridan Road motor bus downtown. Marsh located the Merton offices on the fifteenth floor of the LaSalle Trust Building, and paused a moment inside the door to look the place over. He found himself in a large room which contained several stenographers and clerks. To his left was a grillwork with a window-marked cashier, and beyond this several men who were evidently bookkeepers. In front of him was a railing, behind which sat a girl at a telephone switchboard. At the other side of the room, doors opened into what were evidently three private offices. On the first door he saw the name Mr. Merton, on the second Mr. Hunt. The third door was blank. Approaching the girl, Marsh inquired if Mr. Hunt was in. "'Yes,' she replied, looking him over. "'Have you a card?' Marsh handed her a card, and she went into Mr. Hunt's office. In a moment she returned and said, "'Please step in.' Marsh entered Hunt's office and closed the door behind him. It was the usual private office, with a large flat-top desk in the center. This was so arranged that Hunt's back was to the light, which fell full upon any visitor's face. Some files, a bookcase, and a small table littered with papers stood against the wall. Hunt motioned to a chair and said, "'Sit down, please.' Marsh's card lay before him on the desk. He picked it up and read, "'Gordon Marsh, Private Investigator.' Then, looking at Marsh as he laid the card down, he said, "'What can I do for you?' "'As you see on my card,' replied Marsh, "'my business consists of conducting special private investigations. I read in the morning paper that Mr. Merton is missing, and I came in to see if you would care to use my services.' "'I have placed the entire matter in the hands of the police,' returned Hunt. "'You probably know as well as I do, Mr. Hunt, that that is the next thing to burying the matter. They will be very busy for a couple of days, and then forget it.' "'That is about what I thought, Mr. Marsh,' admitted Hunt. "'But isn't it important, for business reasons, that you ascertain definitely, and as quickly as possible, just what has happened to Mr. Merton?' Marsh asked. "'To a certain extent, yes. But Mr. Merton has left the business entirely in my hands for some time, and things will continue satisfactorily in his absence.' "'Then I presume you wouldn't care to have me conduct a private investigation on your behalf, Mr. Hunt?' "'Well, I'll tell you, Mr. Marsh,' said Hunt, "'until you presented your card to me this morning.' The thought of doing anything beside notifying the police had not occurred to me. Let me think for a minute. With that, Hunt swung his chair around, so that his back was toward Marsh, and gazed thoughtfully out of the window for a few minutes. 
"'In your work,' he said at length, swinging around toward Marsh once more, "'you probably come into more or less contact with the police. I mean by that, that you would work with them, more or less, on a case of this kind?' "'Certainly,' replied Marsh. "'I follow up every likely clue, including everything which may be unearthed by the police.' "'After thinking it over, it may be that we can come to some arrangement, Mr. Marsh,' said Hunt. "'What are your terms?' "'My charges are twenty-five dollars a day and expenses,' said Marsh. "'Phew!' whistled Hunt. "'That's pretty steep. I could hire all the private detectives I wanted for ten dollars a day.' "'But I'm not a regular detective,' protested Marsh. "'I'm an investigator.' "'You make a distinction, do you?' smiled Hunt. "'Absolutely,' asserted Marsh. "'I merely dig up the facts and turn them over to you for any action you see fit. My investigative work could hardly be classed with the ordinary work of the detective.' Hunt clasped his hands before him on the desk. After a moment's thought, he said, "'All right, Marsh. I'm going to engage you. See what you can discover, and report to me whenever you think you are making progress. Incidentally, keep your eye on the police, and see what they are doing. As long as you are working on this job for me, it will be curious to see how effective our police really are. Now, I suppose you want to ask some questions?' "'Yes,' said Marsh. "'One or two. Although, as a rule, I prefer to start with my mind as free as possible.' "'Mr. Merton has been living at the LaSalle Hotel, I understand?' "'Yes.' "'How long has he been living there?' Two years.' "'I suppose I can find out something of his habits there?' "'I think I get your drift, Marsh,' said Hunt with a smile. "'I can assure you, from my personal knowledge, that Mr. Merton led a very quiet and most exemplary life. Practically all his evenings have been passed at the University and Chicago Athletic Clubs, and I believe that occasionally he dropped into the Hamilton Club, of which he is a member.' "'Why did his wife go to Arizona?' inquired Marsh. "'The boy has weak lungs, and the doctor said his life could be saved only by several years' residence in the Arizona climate. Mrs. Merton worships the boy, and insisted upon going with him. They have been there two years.' "'When do you expect them back?' asked Marsh. "'I understand the boy is not much better. It might be years before they return, unless the boy should die.' Marsh thought a moment, then said, "'You mentioned before that the business could go on without Mr. Merton.' "'I presume he has given you power of attorney?' "'Yes,' said Hunt. "'In case of his death, Mr. Hunt, who would be his executors?' "'I cannot see that that has any bearing on the case.' "'Perhaps not,' said Marsh. "'But I am following a line of thought.' "'Well,' returned Hunt, "'if it's of any use to you, I may say that I will be the sole executor.' "'It was a very wise move on your part to employ me in this matter, Mr. Hunt, in view of that fact.' "'How so?' inquired Hunt because to the outsider it might appear that you had some personal interest in Mr. Merton's disappearance. You know, sometimes the police are stupidly suspicious. Hunt sat up with a start. "'You have given me food for thought, Marsh,' he said. "'I hadn't looked at the matter in that light before.' "'Well,' returned Marsh, "'you can now see that my investigations and reports will be of the utmost value to you. Furthermore, as you have already suggested, I can keep my ear to the ground where the police are concerned, and keep you advised of what is going on.' "'Mr. Marsh,' said Hunt, rising. I am very glad you came in to see me. You can count upon my keeping you on this job until everything is settled. One more question, said Marsh, also rising. I noticed a mention of Mr. Merton's country house. Has anyone looked to see if Mr. Merton could by any chance have gone there because of illness or for some other reason? I know positively he is not there, Hunt replied. I keep a caretaker on the premises and occasionally look over the place myself to make sure that everything is all right. The caretaker assures me that Mr. Merton has not been near the place since he closed the house two years ago. One more thing, Mr. Hunt, before I go. People sometimes question my right to investigate. 
Will you give me a line, stating that I am authorized to represent you in this matter? Certainly. Hunt sat down at his desk and hastily penned a few lines on a sheet of letter paper, which he then handed to Marsh. Marsh carefully folded the paper, placed it in his pocket-book, and bidding Hunt good day, went out. End of chapter 12